The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. This morning we have a sizzling topic, executed by the state. What is your opinion of the death penalty? Do you agree with state-ordered executions, and are there viable alternatives? What or who determines the circumstances for those who get charged with special circumstances that result in a potential death verdict? And what about the factor of possible innocence? How many have faced a death sentence before they were exonerated? How many were executed first? So we're quite privileged to have Mike Farrell and Daryl Stallworth Mike Farrell, for many years, Mike has been the president of Death Penalty Focus. Thank you for joining us, Mike, this morning. Sure, happy to be with you. Uh, Death Penalty Focus is dedicated to the abolition of capital punishment. It's also one of the nation's largest, most innovative, and highly respected advocacy organizations. But let me tell you about Mike. Um, For our military listeners, Mike is a former Marine. I know all you folks out there that are military like to know that. Um, So his portrayal of Army Captain B.J. Honeycutt in the TV series MASH came with some experience. And then he, of course, also portrayed Dr. Jim Hansen in the NBC TV series Providence. But his heart, however, is as a political and social activist. He's very active in organizations dealing with spousal and child abuse, veterans' rights, animal welfare, and the environment. He's a spokesperson for Concern America, a group that aids refugees, and he's visited refugee camps in Asia and in Central America to get the world out about Concern America's work across the world. He's been an officer of the Screen Actors Guild, a former co-chair of the California Committee of Human Rights Watch. He served on the California State Commission on Judicial Performance, on the Board of Directors of the National Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty, and in his spare time, he's authored two books, uh, Just Call Me Mike, which I've read, and Of Mule and Man, which I haven't read. And so we welcome uh, Mike. And Mike, thank you for joining us today. You are so passionate about abolishing the death penalty. How did you arrive at that position? Oh, I guess I've always... Um on some level, the thought that killing people made no sense. And I was raised uh, in a religious household that uh, believed in the Ten Commandments, one of which says, thou shalt not kill. So I thought that made sense. Uh-huh. Uh, but um, even after I moved away from the um, faith of my parents, I, uh, I saw, uh, I suppose, uh, society in a way that uh, un- undersc- underscored that view. I was involved in the 60s with a halfway... 
<clears throat> excuse me, halfway house organization, and we visited prisons and saw the situation of people in those prisons and, and talked to them about um, those who were going to come out, about um, ways in which they could come into our program and um, uh, hopefully avoid going back to the same life situation that put them in prison in the first place. And that really helped me understand uh, more about prisons, prison life, uh, the kind of spiritlessness of, the, of that situation. And um, and it just sort of underscored for me the the wrongheadedness of taking people's lives. And then in the, in the 70s, I got involved with um, the Southern Coalition on Jails and Prisons. A con- minister who ran it contacted me when I was doing MASH and asked me if I'd help him because, as we know, the death penalty had been reinstated in 76. And right. As he said, going to be a bloodbath. And uh, I think uh, his, uh, his words have proven correct. Hmm. And how did you become then involved in Death Family Focus? Well, when uh, I worked with the Southern Coalition for uh, quite a while, and then I worked with uh, a couple of teams of lawyers, I met um, uh, a woman who had been associated with the Southern Coalition, formed the Virginia Coalition on Jails and Prisons, and she invite, asked me to get to help with a case in uh, Virginia, a young man named Joe Giratano, who was convicted of a double murder and rape, uh, which she believed uh, he did not do. And uh, I met him and uh, looked at the evidence and determined that I, uh, I agreed with her that he didn't do it. And we fought to get him off death row, which we succeeded in doing, but uh, unfortunately didn't succeed in getting him the new trial we believe he deserves. So he's still in prison today. So he's serving life in prison. He is, yes. And, um, and how long ago was that, Mike? 1980-something... Uh, he, he was supposed to be executed in '91, and we, the, the uh, governor in Virginia at the time, Doug Wilder, commuted him to life just a few hours before he was to be executed. Mm, wow! And uh, you know, from there, you you meet people. <laughs> the, the, the attorney that I, attorneys that I'd worked with there asked me to do another case. I wanted to get involved in a case in uh, Oklahoma, and from there, one in. Uh, Utah, and from there, one in California, and, mm. you know, it just it just spirals. This is like, you, on some levels, like quicksand, you don't, right. <laughs> once you get into it, you don't get out of it. And you've been involved with Definitely Focus for a number of years. How long has that been? Well, it, I was at the one of the initial meetings uh, establishing it in, uh, I think it was 88, uh, but uh, I got involved uh, uh around the execution of uh, Robert Alton Harris, first execution here in mm-hmm. California. Under so the, that was, what year was that? 92, I believe. 92, yeah. And um, from then I was uh, asked to be a board member, and from there I became president, and they call me pre- <laughs> president for life. I don't They call you president <laughs> I'm not sure I'm comfortable <laughs> when, with that, but here I am. <laughs> when did you become president? Pardon me? When did you become president? I don't even remember. You don't remember. <laughs> Well, that fits with President for Life, I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, joining Mike in this controversial discussion is a former senior deputy district attorney, Daryl Stallworth. Let me tell you a little bit about Daryl. Daryl, you and I have known each other for a while, and thank you for being here. Um, he first was a deputy. Uh, first, I knew him as a deputy district attorney and then as a defense attorney. But it wasn't until I was preparing for this show that I discovered what an athlete and scholar he was. And let me just start with his high school, because this is significant. 
He was athlete of the year in four sports, student body president, class valedictorian, and then he went to UC Berkeley and was a starter for the Cal Bears University football team for three years. Then he graduated from Cal with a BA in political science and got his JD from UC Davis, where he served as the president of the Black Law Association. He then served as a prosecutor in Alameda County, California, for 15 years. And when he left there, he was a senior attorney. He, in his career, he conducted over 250 preliminary hearings, resolved over 10,000 cases, tried over 50 cases, and half, over half of those were felonies, 18 were murder cases, and there was the one death penalty case. Um, he's also involved in a number of organizations, President of the Charles Houston Bar, Director of UC Berkeley Big C Society, is a member of the NCAA Gender Equity Certification Committee, and many, many others. He's also lectured on case resolution in Brazil, Malaysia, India, and Turkey. And today he's participating in the, this program because he holds the position of outreach coordinator for, the de- for Death Penalty Focus. So, Daryl, um, I know that just um, from talking to you that the death penalty case that you tried in Alameda County was a, a struggle for you. True. And I'd like you to talk about that just a little bit. Sure. When you review that bio, it makes me sort of um, smile because you would think someone with that history would have been smart enough to know before he accepted a death penalty case that it had a number of errors and flaws. But what I do with a lot of my workshops is I take people through that journey of being a a high school athlete and student and going to a great school like University of California at Berkeley and doing all the things that most people find very appealing, especially when they're looking for people to become prosecutors and be part of a criminal justice system that prides itself on being tough on crime. And Mm -hmm. as I sort of elevated through the whole district attorney's office and started to do heavier cases, it was only natural, it seemed, for me to eventually have a disability case because that was going to be the the highest rank that you could have, and that's where the best prosecutors and the people that were tough on crime would be. And I had been part of, I think, a large group of people throughout the country who believed that because the death penalty was on the books, it was the law, and the people who must have done that had to be smart people. I figured our legislators, our politicians, our Supreme Court justices who kept upholding all of these death penalty verdicts must have known something that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until I actually got into, you know, pretty much the gut of it, into the belly of it in 2003 when I was asked to, to handle my first death penalty case then I realized that I was walking into a journey that was going to open my eyes in ways that I never thought. And sometimes it takes people to be intimately involved with something like the death penalty to see some of its flaws. And as I went through the whole process of selecting a jury and talking to the family, it became clear to me that a lot of what I thought was solidified and official and relevant became um, untruths and myths. I think I always knew that the death penalty wasn't a deterrent, so that wasn't a big problem. But I believed somehow it was going to give families closure, and I spent time with the families. In my first death penalty case, there were five victims. So there were five family impact statements from mothers and fathers Mm. and uncles and children that um, left us with two weeks of just a lot of pain, a 
crying. And I said those words that many prosecutors have said and probably many politicians and justices have said, which is this is going to give you closure. And I realized even in mouthing those words that closure wasn't going to happen. I realized that these families were in so much pain that taking them through a journey of a trial, not to mention what would be 15 and 20 years of waiting for someone to be executed wasn't going to be healthy for them. But because I had been part of this sort of indoctrination and this system and this belief, I continued to pursue the matter. Eventually, Demarcus Ross, who was the young man that was responsible for the five murders on top of 30 robberies and assaults, was convicted of all of the crimes and the murders. And we were at the penalty phase where I had to make an argument that this person should be executed. And I believe at that time I had to dehumanize him. I had to make him something less than human in order for people to execute him because that's what I believe the law really is saying. You know, mm-hmm. Don't value your life, so we're going to execute you. It's supposed to be the worst of the worst. You know, I made the argument for aggravation correct. versus mitigation, and the jury gave him life without parole plus 300 years. So I learned through my journey painfully that I could never be an advocate of the death penalty. I later learned, I think like a lot of people, um, I've met since I've been doing this work that, you know, we're spending a lot of time, a lot of money in a system that's flawed, that's discriminatory, that's arbitrary, that's excessive. So I've made it a point to do as much as I can and work with Death Plenty Focus and doing my workshops and sharing people, sharing with people my story and, and how I came to become an opponent of the death penalty after having been so intimately involved in being an advocate for it. So that's how I've gotten to where I am right now. Yeah, that's an amazing uh, journey. Our subject today is executions by the state, the death penalty. Don't go away. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. 
Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I've been speaking with Mike Farrell. I'm the death penalty. Most of you probably remember Mike as Army Captain B.J. Honeycutt and MASH and former Deputy District Attorney Daryl Stallworth on the death penalty. And we were just discussing both of their backgrounds and uh, how they got to the position of being against the death penalty and um, wanting the death penalty to be abolished. And um, Mike, could you give us a little brief history of the death penalty and how we got to where we are today? Well, the, the death penalty's been, uh, you know, came over, unfortunately, with the uh, pilgrims. But uh, the, uh, the the country has always had it. There, ha- there was a debate, I think, in the founding of the nation uh, initially. Uh, there were debates about slavery and debates about the death penalty, and both of those were sort of put off because they wanted to finally, finally come to agreement uh, with about the Constitution. So we've had the death penalty um, available in the country. And when I say available, some states took it and some states didn't. I think Michigan was the first state to abolish it in somewhere in the 1800s. Um, but, you know, we know about lynching and uh, posses and mm-hmm. horse thieves being hung and black people being lynched. And, I mean, just terrible stuff that went on through the history of our country. Um and over time, it's been refined, if that's the right word, and I'm not sure it is, uh, um, clarified, at least, in law, um, up to and including um, being held unconstitutional in 1972 in the Furman decision, um, and during which, the, uh, at, at which it was held that the, 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 the practice as, uh, as uh, carried out uh, up to that time was simply not didn't meet constitutional muster. And in 76, in the Gregg decision, it was reinstated um, with certain provisions, certain safeguards built in that were supposed to make it uh, fair, more fair, uh, and, and, and more clear, uh, none of which it has done. Uh, so since 76, we've had various states re-accepting uh, or re-joining um, the death penalty ranks to the point that we had about, I think, 12 
states that had not had no death penalty and um, 37, I guess, that, that did, uh, 38. Um, and um, over time now, since that time, we, those of us in the abolition community, have worked in various ways to try to educate the public and educate uh, uh, leaders in the, in the federal government and the state governments to take another look at this system and, uh, and see the flaws and, and see the horror in it. And I think probably what happened in the 80s when the, uh, uh, when the uh, revelation of innocent people on death row began to be made, uh, made known, uh, particularly by um, the uh, Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern mm. University, mm. Uh, there was a huge kind of hue and cry in the press worldwide, but certainly here in the United States. At that time, they saw that there were 30-some people who were uh, exonerated, and since that time, the work of good investigators and good lawyers and, and caring people um, has resulted in over 100, almost 140, maybe 140 by now, people from death row being exonerated and freed. And now what's happening is we're discovering that some who were uh, executed were, in fact, uh, innocent. So. Yeah. DNA, so many developments. DNA uh, significantly, although in in case of death penalty cases, uh, the you know while the Innocence Project has unearthed uh, probably over 200 innocent people proven to be innocent by DNA, right? Only uh, under 20 of them uh, are uh, death row cases. So it's still uh, it's still not the the, the magic bullet, but. Um, and I was reading, Mike, that. Um there are four cases that were investigated after execution that there were serious doubts about whether they had committed the crime. Right. Um, and three of them in Texas. Um, Cameron Todd right. Willingham is probably the most famous one today because he was uh, convicted of an arson murder of his children uh, and executed for it uh, on the basis of what has dem- been demonstrated pretty conclusively to be uh, false, uh, uh, bad uh, science. And in fact, uh, another man in Texas who was charged with the same thing was released uh, on the same basis. But before mm. he was executed, to Willingham was executed. A fellow by the name of Reuben Kent who uh, was executed in '93, I believe. And the prosecutor, uh, Sam Millsap, who was the DA at the time, has now come around and said the the death penalty simply cannot be used in this country because I had a foolproof system and that foolproof system proved it didn't wrong. work. Yep. Um, wow. There's another fellow by the name of Carlos um, De Luna who uh, it's pretty clear, but I, you know I have to hesitate a bit because it's very hard one to get the evidence after execution right. that demonstrates conclusively that somebody is innocent. And um, the the system, the the states, the counties, whatever it is, in my view, have a vested interest in uh, not being proven wrong. So they really don't want to cooperate with these kinds of investigations. Well, actually, that it's, that's an interesting point, Mike, because I was I was looking at the statistics, and uh, Judge Paul, uh, Justice former Justice Paul Stevens, mm-hmm. has come out and said that he's he's very concerned because in our country evidently we have elected judges and elected district attorneys who need to keep getting elected where 
um, in many of the other countries that now no longer have the death penalty do not have that situation. That's right. Yeah, the tough on crime thesis, in my view, the only reason we continue to have the death penalty in this country is is politics. Hmm. Uh, uh, the, the the business of being tough on crime, being demonstrating, you know, I, that started, at least from my perspective, it started in the Nixon administration when they, you know... The, you know, we have a caller. Um, if we could get her on the line here, her name's Vicki from South Carolina. Is, Vicki, are you here? I'm here, Francie. How are you? I'm good. Vicki, uh, please let me introduce you to Mike Farrell and to Daryl Stallworth. Hello, Vicki. Hey, Mike. Hey, Daryl. Hi, how are you? Uh, I'm good. Francie and I have actually known each other for a long time. Um, and, I'm, and I'm glad you're talking about this subject, Francie, because I think it's an incredibly important one. I, uh, Just for your information, Mike and, and Daryl, I am a private investigator in South Carolina, and I work a lot of capital murder cases for the defense and see firsthand just how the death penalty is imposed and who it's imposed against and also... Um, I have complete sympathy for the victims, and I, I, am, I am not in any way discounting what they go through because they go through horrible and horrific circumstances. But in the South, where I am, especially the Deep South, it is, you mentioned politics, and it is politically su- suicidal if you don't believe in the death penalty, if you're a politician, and if you don't fight really hard to impose it. And I think where most people, the impression that they have is that it is going to cost a whole lot more money to keep somebody in prison for life than it will to execute them. And exactly the opposite is true. And also in the Deep South, we still live with that eye-for-an-eye philosophy. And I think people need to overcome that and understand what it truly means. And and that and not to use that as a reason for going after the death penalty but in fact if somebody spends their life in prison in prison without parole uh what we refer to as LWOP they are going to be there forever they're not leaving they're not going anywhere and they're going to die there and i think that you brought up the the people who have been executed that uh, that later it was found out that they were not guilty and and if even one person is executed and it's discovered that they were not guilty that's too many mm. and that that alone is a reason not to have the death penalty never mind that it's not a deterrent never mind that it costs more money um but that's a reason alone and and francie i appreciate it i just wanted to make that comment and, and to have them maybe address that too i appreciate you calling in vicky thank you and you're um very good very good uh, commentary on that. Um, either one of you, Mike or Daryl. Daryl, Daryl spoke. I thought uh, when we were off uh, air, spoke very eloquently about closure, about the dehumanization, uh, about those things that I think uh, are important for people to hear. Yeah, I, in my experiences, we've been able to have people believe that we're doing what's in their best interest because it will give them closure. And most people believe if you are talking to a prosecutor or a politician or governor or you know, even some of the judges and they tell you that, you know, this is the law and this is how it works, then they are led to believe, I think unfortunately, that this is going to give them closure. And those of us who've actually been involved in the criminal justice system, we know that 
not to be the case. And I believe there's a strong movement of education that's taking place across the, the country, and particularly here in California, with helping people understand that a lot of these myths and propaganda that's been used before you know, no longer have any merit. I was going to refer briefly to Justice John Paul Stevens' most recent writings about his transition, and I was moved by him pointing out that what we really need to do is focus the the issue, which is that you know, it isn't whether you believe in a death penalty, it's whether you believe in this death penalty. Mm. And he pointed out the reasons why someone as smart as you know, the Supreme Court Justice back in 1976 believed that the death penalty was viable because he said that he believed it wouldn't be applied in a way that would not be discriminatory, arbitrary, excessive, or racially discriminatory. And then after 30 years of being on the bench, he realized that you know those conditions were not being met. It wasn't even close. 130 people exonerated. Um, a state like Georgia having a murderers who kill white people are 11 times more likely to get the death penalty than murders who kill black people or people of color. He pointed out that the law has allowed death penalty verdicts to become more viable because you, you know, you can't excuse jurors who, or you can't excuse jurors who believe, who don't believe in the death penalty, and you get to have victim impact testimony. So he believes now that, you know, over this period of time, all the things he thought were valuable and credible for a death penalty to exist, you know, don't exist. And I think if we take the lead of someone who you know, knows more about this whole criminal justice system than most people can even imagine, um, then we can continue to educate people and focus the discussion on the problems that are rampant with this particular death penalty as it's applied. And hopefully we can make some headway even in the South where people are so emotionally tied into it. Yes, and we also need to talk about representation in this and everywhere, but particularly True. in the South as well. So let's take a break. Former Daryl Starworth is a former deputy district um, attorney who resigned as a senior DA with 15 years following uh, about a year after the prosecution of his first death penalty case. And film star and human rights advocate Mike Farrell is the president of Death Penalty Focus. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. 
IRB Search is simply the best online data provider for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB Search gives you strength in numbers. With one click, you can access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified and you'll receive a two-week trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. We're continuing our discussion on the death penalty with Mike Farrell and Daryl Stallworth, and we were just uh, talking about the political connections with the death penalty, and I mentioned uh, representation. Um, I've had some experience with uh, representation in death penalty cases, and but I'd like to hear from both of you about um, the problem with getting qualified capital case attorneys to work on these cases. Um, Daryl, could you address that? Sure. I mean, it's an awfully large challenge because you don't get a large group of law students graduating saying they want to go work <laughs> right. for people who are looking at being executed. You know, it's not a popular choice and it's not a very financially satisfying one as well. And then the ones that, that do decide to take that route, you know, they're facing an incredible challenge because there's so much out there to do and so much work to do that once they do get vested in it, you know, they get burnt out pretty quickly because it's all consuming. And, you know, unless you're in one of the small percentages of people who have enough money to afford a, you know, a four-attorney death penalty team, you know, investigators that can work around the clock, you're going to be inherently at a disadvantage when you're facing, you know, a DA's office that has investigators that can assign someone to put on the case and give them solely that assignment. So I find it incredibly sad that almost always the defense attorney is going to be at a disadvantage because of the volume of work they have to do 
And then the also, government has unlimited resources. Yeah, there's some defense attorneys who don't have the experience or the quality of being a good advocate to help a lot of the folks that are facing capital punishment, um, particularly in the South. I've heard some really sad stories of, of attorneys who just can barely show up, not to mention become a good advocate. So we're, we're facing a whole lot of layers of problems with having a fair judicial process when you're talking about capital punishment. In California, the attorneys who handle capital cases, don't they have to be criminal law specialists as well? They do. Um, they require them to have you know, minimum qualifications, um, but it still doesn't give them the ability to have the time and the resources right. because they pay them so little. Right. But, it, but in other states, I'm, I'm aware that there are some cases in, in some southern states where the attorneys were fresh out of law school. They got paid $1,000 for the entire trial, and it might have lasted two or three days. Yeah, I, I just recently heard some very sad stories where I've seen and heard in the South that they've picked a jury in a day. They've gone three days with evidence, and within two weeks, there's people that are being convicted and going through the penalty phase and jury coming back with capital punishment. And I just can't imagine how that representation could have come about in such a short period of time without having exhausted all the possible defenses or been able to have enough time to properly prepare. And how long would you estimate it would take to pick a jury on a capital case? Well, the one that I did personally took three months. Three months we went, to pick the jury. Yeah, we went through a thousand jurors before we could find seventy-five that we considered were qualified, and then we went through two months of evidence and a month of the penalty phase. So it was a six to seven month process from beginning to end, and that was just the actual trial. You talk about the work that had to be done before we got there. You know, mm-hmm. about three years. Well, and speaking of jurors, now I, you know, I only know about California, of course. But California has this interesting requirement that a juror has to be what is called death qualified. So in order to serve on a death penalty jury, you have to believe in the death penalty. Yeah, it's a very general term, but it essentially means that you have to believe and you have to be able to sign a document that says, I'm going to allow the state to execute this person. And if you don't share that belief, or if you either in your written answers or in your verbal answers, you know, suggest that that's something that you couldn't do or you're not, you don't believe it, then you can be excused. And mm-hmm. That's why you go through so many chores. Right. That's amazing. Um, I just wanted to talk a, a, a minute about um, there was, um, and Mike, you can probably address this better than I can, actually. I should ask you. Um there was this resolution before the United Nations um, recently, actually. Yeah, well, there, there have been a number of them over time. Uh, as uh, you've suggested a minute ago, the uh, international community is uh, largely opposed to the death penalty. The, the, the abolition of the death penalty has moved forward around the world uh, to the degree that we now have probably um, twice as many nations uh, two-thirds of the nations of the world have given up the death penalty, either in law or in practice. And the abolition movement, of which our organization is a part, um, we are part of the World Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty, um, the abolition movement s- sort of uh, strikes a 
runs into a dead end when it gets to the United Nations. We've had a couple of um, successful calls at the United Nations for uh, an abolition um, movement, for a statement that says we are, we are as, a, as a united world, intent on moving toward abolition of the, of the death penalty. And it's been hard fought. Um, we won one probably five years ago, and there was one that was just put forward, um, as you suggest, recently. And, and of course, the opposition to it primarily uh, comes f- uh, from the United States and the other killing countries, which are which put us in in, in terribly bad odor. You know, um, aligning ourselves with uh, Pakistan and Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Iran and. Uh, China, uh, the, the the huge killing states, um, when all, virtually all of our uh, allies are um, are opposed to the death penalty. The, the European Union, for example, throughout Europe and, and throughout Latin America at this point, um, there is no support for the death penalty, or very little support for the death penalty, and no death penalty on the books. And yet... Um, the, uh, the United States con- continues to, um, you know, believe somehow that this is a necessary and appropriate um, part of criminal justice. It's just, uh, it's just kind of uh, not only frustrating; it's kind of embarrassing uh, to be put in a position and to be a, the, the purported human rights leader of the world. Exactly, and <laughs> such a contradiction. Yeah, truly, when we are practicing this this horrifying anti-human. Uh, Procedure. Well, in the same article I read um, about the resolution before the United Nations, um, it said that the United States was among the top five countries in the world that had the greatest number of executions. Yes. Of course, the others were China, India, and the highest number. We're actually number two, <laughs> it looks like, from this graph I'm looking at, that Pakistan, well, that's on executions, Pakistan actually has 7,000-plus folks on death row. The United States has 3,000, and even China has less people on death row than the United States. Well, that, that's a little misleading because China dispatches them. And, uh, China just you know, takes them out and shoots them in the back of the head. Uh, that's right, so then they're not prisoners any yeah. longer. So, so you, don't, you don't keep the numbers up. But, you know, if you talk numbers, uh, California has the largest death penalty in the U.S., and uh, over 700 people sit on our death row. And, and as Mark Leno, a state senator, said not long ago, for prosecutors to continue to press for the death penalty and simply continue to fill up that death row facility, what we know today is that as a result of suicide, age, and uh, disease, People, uh, uh, only one out of a hundred people who are prosecuted and successfully sentenced to death will be executed. Well, and, and you brought up a, an important point that's been in the news lately of the over 700 people that are currently on the California death row, um, most of them who have no representation and haven't ever had representation since they actually got to the row. Habeas corpus, resident too. Habeas corpus, right. Yep. Um, Habeas, you want to explain what habeas corpus is? Oh, let's let Daryl do that. <laughs> Daryl, you want to explain what habeas corpus is? Well, it's an appeal to the, the highest court in order to get your trial and the issues in your trial relitigated or retried. And it's pretty much the, the last opportunity to have 
but because of the large numbers of folks on death row, you know, there's a waiting period even to get counsel to help you uh, file those documents and file those papers. And that's part of the, the buildup that we have with the people on death row is that and we don't have, have enough lawyers or enough resources to even review the cases in order right. to get them heard. And reviewing a case means literally reading everything that had gone on previously. Thousands and thousands of pages of trial transcripts, thousands and thousands of pages of trial preparation and jury selection, um, all of the work that's gone into the case. And there are literally boxes just waiting to be opened that there's not enough time or financial resources available for anybody to get even a look sometimes for five, six, seven years. Yeah, and you and in order to be qualified for a habeas corpus, you also had uh, all of your other remedies have run out. Been exhausted. Yeah, I've been exhausted. Okay, all right. Um, I still want to talk about race, but we need to take an, another quick break. So we'll be right back. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basili is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basili, radio to thrive by. 
Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Today's guests, Mike Farrell and Daryl Stallworth, are here to talk about a subject they're both passionate about, the death penalty. And while we were on the break, we were just talking about um, the uh, comparison that stats in states that don't have the death penalty and their murder rates and the states that do. Mike, could you address that a little bit? Sure. Uh, One of the things I find most frustrating is that... um not, you know, most people fall in, back into the belief, as, as your earlier caller suggested, that the death penalty is cheaper and that it deters crime, it deters murder. Um, I, I was pleased that your caller pointed out that the death penalty is, in fact, much more expensive than is life in prison without possibility of parole. That's a hard thing for some people to get. Mm-hmm. The other thing, I remember being hugely frustrated in the, one of the presidential debates uh, uh, I think it was in 2000, Bush v. Gore, in which both of them were asked about the death penalty, and both of them said, I support it because it deters crime. Every every study, every serious study that's been done on the issue, um, some studies that point to it have been have been uh, deep, deep disproven, but every serious study has been uh, shows that there is no deterrent uh, effect of crime, of, uh, of uh, the death penalty as opposed to... Um, stopping murders. But I think the most important, probably, demonstration of that is if you compare the non-killing states to the killing states, we have now 15 states in this country that have given up the death penalty for lots of reasons, but a significant part of them is for the cost. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if you compare demographically similar cities in non-killing states to killing states, you will find a significant difference between the violent crimes in those cities. The non-killing states have a lower violent crime rate than do the killing states, which argues not only against uh, the idea of deterrence, but it says that it just simply works the other way, that, uh, that killing people in Texas has, is uh, done what appears to be almost on a daily basis, um, is not solving their problem down there, and in fact may be creating a bigger problem by uh, by in introducing this state-sanctioned homicide notion. Mm-hmm. It's okay to take a life if uh, if they cross a certain line. Yeah, and in the stats that I looked at, in every situation, it was one to two points difference in the states without the death penalty versus the states with the death penalty. Yep, and the difference is in favor of less. Less exactly, exactly. Um, one of the other things that I want to be sure and talk about is uh, the charging practices, and a, a classic case that everybody talks about in California is um, the O.J. Simpson case and why that wasn't charged 
as a death penalty case because it qualified in a couple of categories. And, um, Daryl, you want to talk about that a little bit, the charging practices? Sure. Um, depending on what the policy is at any particular DA's office, there's some review process for all the murders to come in. The statutes state that there are certain special murders that the prosecutor gets to review and determine whether or not capital punishment should be sought. Typically, is anything more than one murder, the murder of a child, a murder during a robbery, a murder of a police officer, um, a murder involving sexual assault, false imprisonment, or kidnapping. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones that are qualified. So that's the first challenge. And then the second one, I believe, a lot of people don't talk about is, is this case provable? Most prosecutors don't want to seek death on a case that's going to have some issues about whether or not there's reasonable doubt. You can sometimes get a conviction on some cases that um, are thin that you won't get if it's a death penalty case because most jurors, even the ones that believe in the death penalty, don't want to execute somebody they think may not have been responsible if there's a thin line. But then secondly, I believe, actually thirdly, that there's a review process that says you know, how offensive is this crime? You know, will people be outraged? Will a jury think that this person is so bad that we need to execute them? And that's where I believe the racial component comes in. In the state of Georgia alone, that um, eighty um, in the state of Georgia alone, there were uh, people that were being sought for death um, at a higher rate because they killed white people versus people of color. And when you go through any particular county, I think across the nation, if the person that commits the murder is killing someone that is not of color, a white person, a school teacher, something of that nature, then you've got a large disparity of, of what they do. And, you know, that may not be documented in a particular stat, but I think that's part of the whole process, which makes it, you know, less arbitrary and, I believe, more discriminatory. And when you look across the nation and you see the people in death row, you see a large group of them being people of color who have been charged with killing white people. Well, and, and as far as the charging practices, from my perspective, I work in uh, the nine Bay Area counties, and the charging practices in every county are different. So if you live in one city and get charged with crime in another one that happens to be in a, a separate county, um, for exactly the same crime, you may get the death penalty on, in one county and possibly life in prison without parole in the other, just by the luck of the draw. True. That's true across the country, as I understand. And cr- across the country. And so it's from state to state, from county to county, there's no um, seemingly... Oh, of course, and all the, uh, the uh, items that qualify for, for a death penalty charge are different as well from state to state. Right. We, we, we here in California have more special circumstances than any state in the Union, I believe. Isn't that right, Daryl? Yes. And, and one, of the reasons, one of the, the reasons that the, uh, the Furman decision was made in 72 to call the, the death penalty unconstitutional was arbitrariness. And the, the very thing you're talking about here is the definition of arbitrariness. Mm-hmm. Commit a crime in one county, and uh, you get the death penalty. You get the sa- commit the same crime in another county, and you don't. That is as arbitrary as it can be. Correct. And and most the people that are making the decisions at the top, you're talking about people of color being either victims or defendants. Most of the people that are making 
determine the charging practices are white males. Very true. We are through with our hour, Mike and Daryl. If if you want to know more about either one of these gentlemen, about Death Penalty Focus, or want information to contact either of them, go to www.pisdeclassified.com, and there's information following each of their bios. Next week, my guests will be husband and wife team Riley and Jane Parker, who will be discussing workers' compensation fraud. If you're interested in being a sponsor for this show, contact my producer, Johnny Cabrera. His contact information can also be found under sponsorship opportunities at PISDeclassified.com. Tune in as we declassify more real stories from real investigators every Thursday morning, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francis Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.